Welcome to the Harmony Christian Church Podcast. We hope you're encouraged by today's message from Pastor Josh Shoemaker. Luke chapter 5. We're going to start in Luke chapter 5 and verse 33. It says this here in the New King James Version. It says, Then they said to him, they being Jesus' critics, the religious leaders of the day, they said to him, why do your disciples of John fast often and make prayers? I'm sorry. Why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers? And likewise, those of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And he said to them, can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. Then they will fast in those days. Then he spoke a parable to them. No one puts a piece from a new garment on an old one. Otherwise, the new makes a tear, and also the piece that was taken out of the new does not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine will burst and the wineskins be spilled. Or I'm sorry, and the wineskins be spilled and the wineskin will be ruined. But when the wine must, but the new wine must be put into new wineskins, and both are preserved. And no one having drunk old wine immediately desires new, for he says the old is better. The old is better. This interaction with Jesus uh, can be found in three of the synoptic gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and here in Luke. And in all three of the synoptic gospels, the context for this interaction is the same. So I want to spend just a few minutes here this morning uh, giving you the context to this conversation. It starts, actually, it says, uh, on a certain day, Jesus was in a house, was in someone's house, and he began preaching, he began teaching. Um, and as he began preaching and teaching, there, there, uh, a crowd began to gather to listen. As he was teaching and preaching, this crowd gathered, and uh, some friends had a paralytic friend who needed to be healed, needed to be touched. And so they began carrying their friend on the mat, and they try to make their way through the crowd. They're not able to press through the crowd, so they get creative. And they go on top of the roof of the house, and they begin pulling their way, pushing their way, breaking their way through the roof. How many of you know this story? Very familiar story. They begin pushing their way through the roof. They get through the roof, and they lower the paralyzed man through the roof. And Jesus says something interesting to them. He looks at the man, and he says... Your sins have been forgiven. Your sins have been forgiven. Of course, the Pharisees and those who were there listening and watching Jesus preach were not happy that he said this. And he looks at them and he's, he, he, he says, how, how, what's easier, to forgive someone's sins or to tell them to rise up and walk? And then he looks at the man and he tells him to pick up his mat, to, grab, to, to begin to walk and to, to go home. And so the man gets healed, he picks up his mat, he walks home, this paralyzed man walks home. It says that that same day, Jesus is walking along in the town, and he walks by a tax booth. And inside the tax booth is this man named Matthew. And he looks at Matthew, and he, Jesus tells him, follow me. And so Matthew drops everything that he has, 
and gets out of, walks out of the tax booth and begins following Jesus down the road. And it says that Matthew, in celebration of Jesus, in honor of Jesus, throws this banquet for Jesus at his house. And this isn't like your normal banquet, right? It's not the Pope and Mother Teresa that are having a tea party at this house. No, it's, it's like the whole eight mile. You know what I mean? Like all of the, the, the tax collectors and the sinners and the people that you wouldn't expect an honorable man to be associating with, they're at this banquet and Jesus is there with these people. And the Bible says that he's feasting and celebrating with this group of people. The Pharisees and the religious leaders show up to the house and they begin to criticize what Jesus is doing there in the house. And they ask him, who, who, why would this honorable man, if, you're, if you are a teacher uh, and if you are from God, then why are you associating with tax collectors and known sinners? And this is where Jesus makes his famous statement where he says, it's not the well who need the doctor, but the sick. And he says, I have not call, come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so Jesus is there at this feast with, this, with these people, and he's eating, and the, the Pharisees are criticizing. But that's not where the conversation ends. The conversation actually continues on here in verse 33, which we read just a few minutes ago. And then they asked him, why do your disciples of John fast often and make prayers, and likewise those of the Pharisees? But yours are here eating and drinking. What are they asking? They're asking this. Jesus, why don't you do what everyone else does? Jesus, why aren't you fitting into the mold that everyone else fits into and follows? Jesus, why are you breaking all of the rules, right? You've come in. You've stirred up all of, this, all of this commotion. All of these people are listening to you. All these people are following you. And you're breaking all of our rules. Why are you breaking all of our rules? So let's look at the day so far. And not through the eyes of the Pharisees, okay? Let's look at this day. Jesus heals a paralytic man. Not only does he heal him, he forgives the man's sins. Why is this a big deal to the Pharisees? This is a big deal because in order to have forgiveness of sins, you've got to go through the rituals of animal sacrifice and coming before the priest for your sins to be forgiven. But Jesus just looks at the man and says, your sins are forgiven. Breaking the rules, right? Then he goes on and he's walking down the road and he meets a tax collector, right? And the tax collector invites him over to his house. And now he's feasting and eating with all of the outcasts, all of the sinners, all of the publicans that are supposed to be separated from the religious and from those who are holy and righteous. There's supposed to be a division. Yet Jesus is feasting with these people and associating with them. Not only is he eating with those that they look down upon, but he's invited one of them to be his disciple. Think about that. Not only is he associating with them, he's actually invited one of them to be his, one of his closest companions to follow and to teach. Teach the 
law and teach uh, uh, to be a rabbi to. So he's dining with all these people. He's breaking all of these rules. And now he's feasting when everyone else is fasting. One commentator said that it's very possible that this could have taken place on one of the Jewish fast days. I believe there's seven of them throughout the year, that, that days that are mandatory fast days for, for the Jews. This could have, it could have been, it doesn't tell us, but it's possible that this could have been held on one of the Jewish fast days. So while everybody else is fasting, Jesus is celebrating. You know, when they fasted in those days, their fast was a sign of mourning. It was a sign of contrition. So they're in mourning, and Jesus is in celebration. Right? No wonder why the Pharisees are upset with him. Jesus, you're breaking all of the rules. You're stepping on everyone's toes. Jesus' response to them was awesome. It was, he responded to them with three mini parables that basically say this. Something new is here. It's time to let go of the old. Jesus is breaking all of their boxes. He's upsetting all of their expectations. And they come to him, and what does he tell them? In three many parables, he tells them something new is here. It's time to let go of the old. The bridegroom is here. It's time to lay aside the days of mourning. It's time to feast and to celebrate. He's saying, it's time to lay aside the slave garment and put on the garment of righteousness. It's time to let go of the former systems and structures and embrace the new that has the ability to hold the new measure of glory I'm ready to pour out. It's time to let go of the old. It's time to embrace the new thing that is here. This message that Jesus is teaching to let go of the old and, and encounter the new, this message would have been shocking to the teachers of the law because Jesus wasn't trying to add to their message. He wasn't trying to put a little cherry on top of the law. He wasn't coming in and trying to maybe to even rephrase what they were teaching. Jesus was coming in with a completely different, new message that had absolutely nothing to do with the old system. He wasn't coming in to, to, uh, to restructure, or I'm sorry, he wasn't coming in to add to the structure. He was coming in to completely restructure the whole system. He wasn't patching up old ideas with new ones. He was coming in with a completely new system and a new kingdom. In fact, it says in verse 35 there, when he's telling the parable about the, the new garment, and the, I'm sorry, the, the new cloth patching up the old garment, he says that, that um, let, me, let me just read it here. In verse 35, it says, No one puts a piece from a new garment on an old one. The new doesn't match the old one. That word match there is the word sufano, which is where we get our word for symphony. It literally means to harmonize with or to be in like mind. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying these two things do not harmonize with one another. These two things cannot actually mix together. The law and grace don't mix. The law and grace don't mix. The merit system and love don't sing together. 
having to earn and to strive and to work doesn't mix with grace, mercy, and love. They don't sing together. It's like mixing country music with heavy metal, right? Like Dolly Parton and Ozzy Osbourne. They just don't mix, right? They do not go together. It's like mixing IU and Purdue, right? <laughs> Gold and black and red and white just don't, they just clash, right? They don't go together. He's saying these two things do not harmonize. In fact, it says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 10, it says that if we choose to live under the bondage of the law, then we are subject completely to the law, right? If we choose to go and live under the law instead of grace, you cannot mix the two. You can't live under the law and expect grace. That if you choose to live under the law, then you will reap the percussions of the law. That you actually cannot mix the law and grace. You cannot get um, right with God by cleaning up your act and following the Christian rules. You can only get right with God by submitting to his love and his mercy. If you choose to live under the bondage of the law, you live under the law's curse. But if you choose to live under his grace and your mercy, then you live under his grace and his mercy. You can't mix the two. You can only get right with God by submitting to his love and his mercy. And you know what? Sometimes people don't like to hear that. Sometimes people don't like to hear that it's not the rules that save us. And we get, we get real good sometimes, I think, at mixing the law and grace. When we encounter somebody who is in sin or living a lifestyle of sin, what the first thing we do is try to tell them what they're doing wrong and they need to fix that. What are they doing wrong? We need to fix that. This is not biblical. This is not right. And we begin teaching them and preaching them what it should look like, right? We begin bringing in the rules on what it should look like. When are we going to trust that the love and the mercy of Jesus is powerful enough to change behavior? When are we going to trust that the love and mercy of Jesus is powerful enough to change behavior? We can show the rules to them all day long, but the rules won't make sense until they encounter the love of Jesus. Romans 1 chapter 16, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 1 verse 16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. What is the gospel? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. It's the kindness of God that draws men to repentance. I want to remind you of something from this story. Matthew was sitting in his tax booth when Jesus called him. Jesus didn't walk up to him and go, hey, Matthew, listen, buddy. Collecting taxes for the Romans is wrong. You shouldn't be doing this, right? 
what does Jesus do? Jesus just looks at him in his tax booth while he's ripping off the people. And he says, Matthew, come follow me. And I believe in that moment, Matthew saw something in the eyes of Jesus that wasn't condemnation, it wasn't guilt, it wasn't a weight, it was love. And Matthew got up after encountering the love of Jesus, after seeing the love and grace of Jesus in his eyes. Matthew gets up out of his tax booth and leaves all of it behind and follows Jesus. His first encounter was love, and it caused him to, to leave all of the things that were breaking the rules, right? It caused him to leave all of the things behind that were wrong and that he shouldn't be doing because he encountered the love of the Father. When are we going to believe that the love and mercy of God is strong enough to break every bondage? It's powerful enough to change our behavior, Amen. I feel like I need to stick right there for just a minute. The power of his love is strong enough to change any behavior. Some of you maybe are having, dealing with issues with, with family members. Maybe, maybe you're dealing with family members who are doing things that, are, that you know that they shouldn't be doing. They're living lifestyles that they know that you know that they shouldn't be living. And honestly, they probably know it too. I want to encourage you this morning because you felt the weight of that. I don't know if there's, who this is in this room, but you felt the weight of that responsibility. I want to encourage you in this. Love them. Love them like Jesus loves them. In the midst of their dysfunction, in the midst of even their gross sin, love them like Jesus. The power of his love is strong enough to break every bondage and every curse. The power of his love is strong enough to draw men to repentance. And once again, the word in, the, in, the, in, in Romans is it's the kindness of God that draws men to repentance. It's not the, the taskmaster. It's not the, the critic. It's not the one who comes in with the harsh, heavy word. And listen, I, I understand there's times where, it's, where, where, where we're called to, uh, to, to share those types of words and those types of things. But I want to tell you that the love of God is enough to draw men to repentance. Love that one who is in bondage. And watch what happens when they encounter the love of Jesus through you. Watch what happens when they encounter the love of Jesus through you. The love of Jesus, love and mercy of Jesus is powerful enough to break any sort of character flaws. Thank you, Jesus. Jesus was announcing that something new was here and that the old would not mix with the new. He gives us some more insight as to why uh, the old doesn't mix with the new, with the image of the wineskin. And here's where I really was working to get to today, all right? I'm ready to start preaching now. We're what, I don't know, 10 minutes and 15 minutes? I lose track of time. You all wish I could te- keep track of time better, I'm sure, while I'm preaching. But we're here, we're here, we're, we've arrived. The wineskin gives us some insight into what Jesus is talking about here. Wineskins back in Jesus' day, were bag-shaped containers that were made from goat skin. 
And, um, and what they would do is they would put new wine, freshly pressed wine, into the wineskin in order for it to, for the, for the fermentation process. As it was fermenting, it would release a gas called carbon dioxide. Um, and what that would do is that gas would be trapped inside of this, of this container, inside of the wineskin, and it would cause the wineskin to blow up like a balloon. And the wineskin would have to be able to stretch in order to, uh, in order to uh, process the wine. The, the, the wineskin would have to be able to stretch. Okay? What would happen is over time, wineskins, as they were used, would become brittle. It would become rigid and unbendable. Okay? So wineskins would become rigid and unbending, and it would lose its ability to hold new wine. Because again, as the new wine was fermenting, it would release that gas and it would expand, and the wineskin would lose its ability to stretch. Do you all feel where I'm going with this right now? The wineskin would lose its ability to stretch. So what is Jesus saying here? He's saying this was the problem with the Pharisees. They were so committed to their old wineskin that when new wine came, they were unable to carry it. They were so committed to their old structure and their old system that when something new and more glorious came, they were unable to contain it because they were unwilling to give up their old, brittle, unstretchable wineskin. But here's the thing. This isn't just a problem for the Pharisees. This is a problem for many believers as well. We get attached to our old wineskins. We get attached to our old systems and our old structures and our old traditions so much so that when God wants to bring in a new wineskin that can hold new wine, we refuse the wine to hold on to our new old wineskin. God is ready to pour out new wine, but we have fallen so in love with old wineskins that we refuse to exchange it for new. And therefore, we disqualify ourselves from receiving new wine. I assume all of you here have seen what's happening across our nation right now in our universities, particularly Asbury University. Revival has broken out across our nation, and it's been a glorious thing to watch. Facebook is actually good to get on now because my feed is just littered with things about going on with Asbury University, Lee University, several other universities that are now beginning to experience uh, revival on their campuses. Uh, I've, I've, I've witnessed even, uh, or I know of at least two prayer meetings that began uh, in houses uh, that we are connected to that began uh, one day and ended up lasting several days just because of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on those places. Revival has come to our country. We've been crying out for it for years, and revival has come here. I have overwhelmingly seen excitement from most people. Most people I see 
are encouraging. Most people I see are excited to see what's happening at Asbury and other places. But there's always that one guy, right? Especially when you get on Facebook. <laughs> so overwhelmingly, I've seen people who are excited and are thrilled about what's happening, but I've also seen the critic. And I've seen it from every side and every angle. I've seen Pentecostal, charismatic people who are upset because it doesn't look like Azusa Street. Like, is this really a revival? I don't see too many people falling out in the spirit, right? Like, is this real? You know, and they're criticizing because it doesn't look like their old wineskin. On the other side of the coin, I've seen people who are complementarian who are upset and saying that it's not a real revival because they have women on stage helping to lead the revival. So it can't be of God. My, my favorite one is this. It's just emotionalism. It's just all emotion, right? Like, it's just, it's just people getting hyped up. Uh, it, you might as well just go to a Taylor Swift concert. You'll get the same thing, right? It's just emotionalism. It is. <laughs> It is emotional. You're telling me that you're going to encounter the God of the universe, perfect love, and you're not going to be emotional? Absolutely, it's emotional. And obviously, we are not led by our emotions, but you better believe that the emotions are a gift from the Father. And we are going to experience emotion. When true revival comes, if there's not emotion, that's when I begin to question if it's real. But you have all of these critics criticizing it. And what, why are they criticizing it? Why are they coming against a move of the Holy Spirit? Because they cannot let go of their wineskins. Because it doesn't look like what they thought it should look like. It doesn't look like what it did the last time we experienced revival. And because it doesn't look like that, it can't be God. And we can't let go of our old wineskins. And therefore, we disqualify ourselves from receiving the new wine that God is pouring out. We've become so in love with our old wineskins that, that, yeah, God's pouring this out over here, but I'm going to stay right here and hold on to this old, unbending, worn-out wineskin and try to get one last drop of wine out of it. All the while, we could come over here, receive a new wineskin, and receive an abundance of the new wine that he is pouring out. God is giving us, and you know... Uh, Back when, uh, in November, when I began feeling like I've been hearing, was hearing a word of the Lord for just the, this church and for where we're going, that's when I began hearing the word about presence and God making, wanting us to make presence a priority in this church. And when I believe uh, uh, the Lord began speaking to me about Wednesday nights and beginning to, uh, to have Wednesday nights again, and part of making presence a priority is Wednesday nights. The other word that he spoke to me that I, I shared a little bit with last Wednesday was this, that I believe God is, is giving us a new wineskin in this church. We've been praying for revival We've been praying for new wine, but here's the deal. It tells us right here in this verse, God will not pour new wine into an old wineskin. He won't do it. 
and it's not because he's cruel or because he wants, he wants to just mess everything up or change things. It's because of this. Because if you pour new wine into an old wineskin, the wineskin breaks and the wine is ruined. And God won't pour new wine into an old wineskin because he's not wasteful. He's not going to break you and he's not going to waste the wine. And so I believe what God is, is doing here within us is, yes, we're praying for new wine to come, but before the wine comes, I'm praying he would begin to give us a new wineskin that has the ability to contain and to hold the wine. That he would give us a new wineskin that is flexible, that is not rigid, that is, is able to handle the stretching that the new wine brings, that has the capacity to handle uh, things that maybe, maybe the stretching and things that might get a little uncomfortable or a little different or bring us out of our boxes, that there's a new wineskin that can handle those things so that we can handle the wine that he wants to pour out. Thank you, Jesus. You know, here's the, here's the deal. The wineskin, we get so attached to our wineskins. But the wineskin, the whole purpose of the wineskin has one purpose, to hold the wine. The whole purpose of the wineskin is to hold the wine and nothing else, right? But we've become so in love with our wineskins, right? We've become so in love with our wineskins, that, that we, we forget that the real treasure is not the structure. It's not the traditions. It's not the, the way we do things. The, the real treasure is the wine, right? L listen, what's more fun, a wineskin <laughs> or wine, right? <laughs> right? Now, listen, I'm not promoting drinking here, okay? So, listen, I'm not promoting any of that, but, but I'm pretty sure people don't go to the bars to look at the bottle, <laughs> right? But we get so obsessed with the container that we forget the real treasure is the anointing being poured out. The real treasure is not the type of songs that we're singing. That's great, right? That, that's awesome. But it's just a container to hold the glory that he wants to bring. That, you know, it, it, the, the structure of our church service, how we structure, how we do things, that's great. But that's not the goal. That's not the prize. The prize is did Jesus show up in the room? Don't get so obsessed with the wineskin that you forget the treasure is the wine. It's the glory that comes when you are able to be, when you are able to hold the wine. Or the wine. It's not the structure. It's the wine that's glorious. It's the wine that's the fun part. You know, I watched a video of Asbury. I'm kind of rambling now. I'm sorry. I watched the video uh, of the revival in Asbury just last night, and they were singing the doxology. You know, the... Um, Holy, holy, are you Lord God? I would sing it, but, you know. Um, worthy is the Lamb, worthy is the Lamb, you are holy. That song. They were singing that song. No instruments. There was no guitar. There was no drums. There was no piano playing. No instruments, just voices singing, holy, holy, are you Lord God Almighty, over and over again. 
singing that song. No other parts of the song. No, I don't know if there is any other parts of that song. But they didn't go any other part. I've never heard any. Is there other? Any, all you, Chris, is there another part of that song? Paul? Maybe a little more? Yeah. Well, they didn't sing that part. It was just that part over and over again for over an hour. Over an hour. Just holy, holy are you, Lord God Almighty. Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb. You are holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb. Over and over and over again. No instruments. Nobody on a microphone leading it. Just the people of God who were hungry to see his face. Singing the same line over and over again for an hour. And listen, I'm going to tell on some of you. I've had people say before that, man, that song's just too repetitive. That course is just, you're missing the point. It's not about the structure. It's about the glory that comes and sits on the structure. And if he's coming in and he's sitting on one line over and over again for an hour, then listen, I'm going to sit for over an hour singing that one line over and over and over again. You know in heaven right now what they are saying, gathered around the throne saying, holy is the Lord God Almighty. I think it's the doxology actually. Now that I'm thinking of it, I'm realizing this is the same thing. Over and over again, they are declaring the same thing, that he is holy, holy, holy for all of eternity. It's not about the structure. It's about the glory that comes and sits on the structure. We've got to learn to let go of our old wineskins. However he comes, that's what we want. However he comes. In 1 Kings chapter 19, Elijah, I'm almost done. 1 Kings chapter 19, Elijah is on a mountaintop, and he's sitting inside of the cave on a mountaintop, and all of a sudden, there's this great gust of wind that comes. And the wind was so great when it came, it says that it broke up the rocks around him on the mountain. And it says that God was not in the gust of wind. Then it goes on, and it says that after the wind, there came a great earthquake. It shook the mountain. And Elijah said that God was not in the earthquake. Then after the earthquake, it said that he looked around and there was fire on the mountain. And he said, God is not in the flame. He's not in the fire. And then what's next? Then he hears this still small voice, this whisper. And Elijah says, grabs his mantle and he wraps the mantle around his head. And he walks out to the mouth of the cave. And he begins to listen to the whisper of God. Listen to the voice of God in the whisper. The point I want to make with this story is this. That God wasn't in the fire. He wasn't in the wind. He wasn't in the earthquake with Elijah. But he was in the fire for Moses. When Moses saw the burning bush, God spoke to him through the burning bush. For Elijah, he wasn't in the fire, the wind, or the earthquake. But on the day of Pentecost, they heard a sound of a rushing mighty wind that swept through the house. And it says that clothed tongues as a fire danced upon their heads. He wasn't in that for Elijah, but he was in that for those that were there on the day of Pentecost. And another, another passage uh, after uh, Peter and John 
uh, just got questioned by the Pharisees for healing the man at the gate called Beautiful. It says that they come, come back to one of their companions' house, and they begin praising God and praying. And it says that the place that we're in was shaken, and they all received the Holy Spirit. He wasn't in the earthquake for Elijah, but he was for Peter and John and the other disciples who were there. What am I saying here? That he may come in different ways, but who cares in what way he comes? I want to be where he is now. He may have come in the fire at one point in time, but if he's in the wind, I want the wind. He may have came in the earthquake, but if he's talking to me in a still small voice, guess what? I don't care about the earthquake. I want the still small voice. He comes in different ways, and it doesn't make those systems or structures bad or wrong or evil or any of those things. But if he comes in a different way, I don't care about the structure. I just want him. I want the wine. I want the glory. I want to be where he's at and, how he, and hear how he's speaking in that moment. He's in charge. He's in charge. I, I, don't want, I don't want my preferences and desires to be in charge. I don't want my, my, uh, my own longings and, and those sorts of things to, to, to dictate what he can and can't do. He's in charge. He gets to decide how he comes. And our job is to not fall in love with the wineskin, but to follow the wine. Where is he pouring out? And I'm going to position myself. I'm not going to make him try to, try to fit in my old wineskin. I'm going to position myself where he's pouring out. And I'm going to be obedient to what he's doing and what he's saying and how he's moving. And you know what? It, it may get uncomfortable. There may be times where I'm like, well, okay, this is a little different, Right? There may be times where I'm like, ah, that's, that's not the song I would have sang, right? <laughs> but part of having the new wineskin is being flexible enough to say, I don't care what holds the container. I just care what's in it. And I'm going to remain flexible and unrigid and unmoved. Or I'm sorry, I'm going to remain flexible and, and, and able and pliable to be able to receive what he has to pour out whatever it is, whatever it looks like. Whatever it is, whatever it looks like. Let's go ahead and stand together. Thank you, Jesus. Do you know why the the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the so-called sinners could receive Jesus so easily because they had no old wineskins lying around. <laughs> how, how did they, how did the tax, how did the prostitute know how to respond to Jesus by falling at his feet and cleaning his feet but the religious leader who studied the Torah and the law and who was looking for the Messiah, how did the prostitute 
know how to respond to Jesus, but the religious leader had no clue who was sitting in front of him. How? Because the prostitute didn't have an old wineskin lying around. She had no other expectations. She had no other structure to base off of. She just saw the love and grace and mercy in his eyes. And she positioned herself under the wine to be able to receive it. They didn't care that Jesus was feasting when tradition said to fast. They just feasted with him. They didn't care that it was the Sabbath. They just knew that they couldn't walk before, but now they can. That's one, I, I have that in here. One of my favorite stories is when Jesus is walking along the road and there's a blind man there and, and Jesus heals him of his blindness and the Pharisees find out what Jesus had done and they call the blind man in to question him and man, they just berate him with questions. Who is this man? Do you not realize that he's a sinner? Do you, what do you, you're calling him a prophet. He's, he's no prophet. We're, we're, we're uh, students of Moses. We know better. Who do you think this man is? And I love the blind man's response. They said, I don't know who he is. All I know is I was once blind, but now I see. He didn't care about their wineskin. He didn't care about their structure. He didn't care what they thought. All he knew is I encountered the living God, and that's all that matters to me. That's all that matters to me. Hallelujah. They didn't care if he was right to associate with uh, a Jewish man, to associate with a Samaritan. They were just fascinated that he could tell them everything they knew about them and remove their shame from him. God will not pour new wine into old wineskins because if he did, the wineskin would break and the wine would be wasted and he will not waste anything. So we have a choice, church. We have a choice. We can either hold on to our old wineskin. We can either embrace our old wineskin and not want to move or be uncomfortable and hold on to that thing, trying to get anything we can out of it, trying to get whatever's left and trying to squeeze whatever we can out of that old wineskin, or we can allow God to come in, give us the new wineskin, we can remain flexible and stretchable and receive the abundance of the new wine that he wants to pour out. I don't know about you, but I want the new wine skin. I don't know about you, but I, I want the wine that he has to pour out. I don't want to miss what he's doing in our world right now. I don't want to miss what he's pouring out at these college campuses and in these other houses of prayer. I don't want to miss those things because I'm too committed to my structure. Because I'm too committed to what I think it should look like and sound like. I just want to position myself under him and receive whatever it is he has to pour out. Hallelujah. I want to read these last things here just before we close. These are actually notes that Amber had written out as we had been talking about this throughout the weeks. The Lord gave her some things here, and I just want to read those. She said, 
Revival has been happening in areas that we have been connected to for years. So what she means by that is there's, there's different places of different people that we know or are connected to, friends that we have or pastors that we are in connection with that have been experiencing revival for years. They've been experiencing a measure of glory for years. She said, we, what is exciting about Asbury is the expectation that it, crea- it is creating across the nation. Have you seen that? I don't, I don't know about you, but in me, it's created this incredible expectation for God to move, not just at Asbury, but in, in other college campuses and other universities. I, I, even, I even see God moving in Elwood schools and in Madison Grant schools and in Tipton schools and God beginning to move in those places. It's created this expectation. And she goes on and she says this here, hunger and expectation is the recipe for revival, no matter if it's personal or corporate. Hunger and expectation is the recipe for revival. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Hunger and expectation is the recipe for revival. What does that mean? That means every Sunday we walk into this room, we can experience a measure of revival. Every Sunday we walk in this room, you can be experiencing, let me say it this way, you can come in and think, man, it's just a normal, ordinary Sunday. And the person next to you can be encountering the living God. What's the difference? Hunger and expectation. If you come in hungry, you will be satisfied. But if you come in last a days ago and like whatever, then that's what you will receive. Hunger and expectation. Asbury was an unlikely place for an outpouring, but anywhere can be primed for an outpouring through hunger and expectation. Churches all across the nation are holding prayer services and additional services in light of what is happening and it's expectation that is causing that to happen. Sometimes we treat revival as some lofty prize that's unattainable, but it was available at different times and in different places in history. We act as though the father has been sitting back passively, not willing to visit the cries of his children till he feels like it. Instead, He has been waiting for open hearts. He's been waiting for those that are willing to lay aside their old wineskins and willing to embrace a new wineskin so that can hold the wine. Let the expectations of what is happening around our nation deeply rooted in you, be deeply rooted in you, and don't stop until you encounter a new measure of presence over and over again. Don't sit back talking about how cool it is and how awesome it is that people are experiencing revival. Jump in the river. Harmony, I want to jump in the river. I don't think it's any coincidence. I said I was almost done five minutes ago. I promise this time. I don't think it's any coincidence that we begin our Wednesday night services the same week Asbury breaks out in revival. 
I don't think that's a coincidence. We, we uh, honestly, I planned on starting them last month, and I, I was, but, but I didn't have a chance to talk to our board yet and, and run everything through them and do all those things. So it ended up being February, and I told our board, I said, I think it's going to be next week. We're just going to do it, right? We're just going to jump in next week. Had no idea what, what the date was. Didn't plan for, that wasn't a special date or anything to us. I don't think it was any accident that we started that last Wednesday. I don't think it's any accident that in November, God is talking to us about presence and about new wineskins. And now here we are seeing revival in our nation. Church, God is giving us an opportunity here. And again, we have a choice to make. Will we receive the new wineskin? Or will we hold on to our old systems? God, we receive, we say yes to whatever it is you have for us today. God, we say yes for whatever it is you have for us. However you want to speak, Jesus, we say yes to it. If you want to come in fire or if you want to come in an earthquake, God, we say yes to it. We just want you, Jesus. 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 we pray even right now in this moment. God, we open our hearts right now, even in this moment, Jesus. Normally right now we would close the service and we would go uh, eat at the Mexican restaurant. But God, if you want us to wait just a few more minutes, God, we say yes. Jesus, we say yes. Nothing else will do. Hallelujah. I just want you. Nothing else. Nothing else. Nothing else will do. I just want you. Nothing else. Nothing hunger right now in Jesus name we release hunger right now hunger for the things of God right now in Jesus name all across the room hallelujah
God, we declare one thing have I desired of the Lord. One thing will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, that I might inquire in your tabernacle to behold the beauty of the Lord. One thing, Jesus. One thing, Jesus. I think it's interesting what sparked the Asbury revival was at a chapel service for the students. One of the ministers at the college was preaching, and guess what he was preaching about? The love of God. He's preaching about the overwhelming, extravagant love of the Father. I don't think it's any coincidence that as he was speaking about the love of God, that revival broke out at that school. I don't think it's any coincidence that as he was speaking about the love of God, that all of a sudden a group of college students became fascinated with God. I don't think it's a coincidence that he spoke about the love of God and a group of college students decided that they didn't care if they had to spend all day and all night in that room, that they would rather be there in the presence of the Lord than anywhere else. How do you get to a point? How do you get to a point where there's only one thing you desire? How do you get to a point where you can come into the place that the Psalms does there with David when he says, one thing have I desired of the Lord? How do you get to that point? You encounter a love that is so captivating that nothing else matters. You encounter a love that is so captivating that everything else becomes peripheral. 
How do you get to a point where you don't care so much about the structure? You fall in love with the one who first loved you. And so, Father, I pray now for each and every person in this room that they would so encounter the tangible love of God that it would revolutionize everything about them. God, that they would so encounter the love of God that it would cause them to break all of their jars and all of their boxes, Jesus, and say, whatever it takes, I just want you, Jesus. Whatever it takes, God, I just want to experience you. Whatever it takes, I just want to look in your eyes all the days of my life. And I'll be satisfied by being in the presence of the Lord and having nothing else. God, I pray that along, that along with the new wineskins, Lord, that you would just, just uh, flood us with the love of God in this room, Jesus. Flood us with your love in this room. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more messages like this or information about our church, please visit HarmonyChurchFamily.org.